Good evening. In the news tonight, climate-fueled wildfires continue to rage up and down the West Coast. President Trump defies public health edicts to hold a massive indoor rally Sunday night. And homeless advocates rally outside Gracie Mansion as the Upper West Side debates the presence of 300 homeless men in their midst. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, and this is the WBAI Evening News for Monday, September 14th, 2020. Amid high winds and dry weather, raging wildfires continue to burn out of control today on the West Coast. More than 5 million acres, an area larger than the state of Connecticut, have gone up in flames that have consumed whole towns and left at least 35 dead in California, Oregon, and Washington State. Speaking on Sunday, California Governor Gavin Newsom pointed to climate change as the main culprit. The debate is over around climate change. Just come to the state of California. Observe it with your own eyes. It's not an intellectual debate. It's not even debatable any longer. What we are experiencing, the extreme droughts, the extreme atmospheric rivers, uh, the extreme heat. President Donald Trump was scheduled to meet in private with Governor Newsom this afternoon to discuss possible aid for California. Trump has long insisted climate change is a hoax and that California's burgeoning wildfires are due to poor forest management. And I see again the forest fires are starting. They're starting again in California. I said, you've got to clean your floors, you've got to clean your forests. They have many, many years of leaves and broken trees. And they're like, like so flammable. You touch them and it goes up. I've been telling them this now for three years, but they don't want to listen. The environment, the environment. But they have massive fires again in California. Maybe we're just going to have to make them pay for it because they don't listen to us. We'll have more about the California fire apocalypse later in the show from a Bay Area-based reporter who works at our sister station, KPFA. The West Coast wildfires come even as the COVID-19 pandemic rages on as well. The official U.S. death toll from the virus has now topped 194,000, with tens of thousands of new infections still being detected every day. However, President Trump continues to minimize the pandemic. On Sunday night, he held his first indoor rally in almost three months in a suburb of Las Vegas, Nevada. The event drew an estimated 25,000 people. A Trump administration spokesperson defended the event, saying it was the same as when massive crowds participated in the George Floyd protests earlier this year. However, public health experts noted that face coverings were nearly universal among Black Lives Matter protesters this summer, and their events were also held outside. Here in New York City, members of Extinction Rebellion sang as they marched through the streets of Lower Manhattan Sunday, demanding rapid climate action from all levels of government. On Saturday, 200 environmentalists and eco-socialists marched on an NRG power plant in Astoria. The power plant is looking to switch over from burning oil to burning natural gas, which would require fracked gas being piped in from out of state. The protesters called on the company to focus on building more power stations that run on renewable energy. 
This is newly elected Astoria State Assembly member Zoran Mamdami speaking to the crowd. When confronting the scale of the climate crisis, to feel a sense of helplessness, to feel like no matter what we do in our own lives, no matter what action we take, it's just a drop in the bucket. But we must know that a drop in Astoria makes waves across New York City and New York State. And finally... Homeless people and their allies rallied yesterday outside Gracie Mansion to demand Mayor Bill de Blasio allow 300 homeless men to continue to stay in a hotel on Manhattan's Upper West Side. The presence of the homeless men has caused a heated controversy in recent weeks in the affluent neighborhood. All of a sudden, for no reason at all, the mayor wants to uproot people, That's move right. them all around, yeah. disrupt yeah. kids who are about to start school in Brooklyn, have more about the standoff in the Upper West Side later in the show. We'll talk more about the West Coast fire apocalypse with a Bay Area reporter who's been on this story for weeks. That was The End of the World by Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Choir. You are listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent, New York City's radical newspaper and website, celebrating its 20th anniversary this fall. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. Speaking of The End of the World, it felt like we got a glimpse of that at the end of last week when photos showed San Francisco's night sky lit up in an eerie orange glow from nearby forest fires. The fires continue to rage up and down California, as well as Oregon and Washington State, consuming more than 5 million acres of land so far and blighting the air with a thick smoke. To talk about the fires and some of the stories behind the wildfire story, we are joined this evening by Ariel Boone. She is a journalist in the Bay Area who produces Upfront, a morning public affairs show on our sister station, KPFA. She previously worked for Democracy Now! here in New York City. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. It's, it's great to have you with us. Uh, first of all, uh, for those of us uh, here in New York, uh, can you kind of paint a picture of, of what uh, it's like to be in the Bay Area right now and in these recent days when the when the sky was orange and, and I understand there's still a tremendous amount of smoke? Can you just kind of paint that picture for us? Yeah, on the Orange Sky Day, which was last week, everybody woke up and fully expecting the sun to be out at 8 a.m. We all had to turn on our lights in our house instead because it just did not become bright. The sun just did not break through this orange layer, or in San Francisco, it was also more of a, a reddish-orange layer. 
um, from morning until sunset and then a little bit the next day as well. And this was caused by a thick layer of smoke by very strong winds that was in the upper part of, um, of the atmosphere. And ironically, or kind of uh, uh, sadly enough, that day was actually one of our cleanest air days that we've had in the last month on the surface where we breathe the air and most of the smoke was actually just far above us, which was causing that color. So that was one of the few days that we were actually able to open our windows uh, for those of us who are housed and uh, let the clear air in to, um, to air out our homes, our apartments. And for the rest of the time, today is actually the 28th straight day of a spare the air alert, which is a designation um, from the Bay Area Air Quality Management District saying that uh, the particulate matter outside is very bad, that it's unhealthy, and that, uh, you know, there's no burning allowed, limit driving, limit exposure to the outdoors. Um, and it's frightening. Uh, I have friends with newborn babies, and they can't take their babies outside because of the air quality. Some people who are in evacuation zones right now, especially in the Sierras, are sleeping in eight-hour shifts with other members of their families, uh, so that people can stay awake and if the evacuation order comes in, that they can all flee together, that there's someone awake during that time. Um, right. Everyone knows someone whose family members have lost a home. Right. And, and um, can you can you summarize for us uh, um, here why these fires have exploded the way they have? Um, I understand there's more than one factor at work here. Can you just break that down uh, quickly? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, this could definitely be a 20-hour conversation on this, but uh, having interviewed some forest ecologists over the last uh, couple weeks, I will do my best. So after about 13,000 years of forest management by uh, tribe members from the Yurok tribe, the Crow, the Hapa, uh, sorry, the Hoopa, the Miwok, the Chumash, and other tribes, um, California outlawed intentional burning in 1850. And since then, we have basically been completely suppressing fires in the state. So areas of large areas of the state that used to burn every year uh, are not burning. And Californians have continued to build in suburban areas that are more wooded. So we're going to places that is where there's historically been fire. We're also experiencing a drought that's definitely caused by climate change. Climate change has also authored, altered our weather patterns. Um, bringing hot winds to part of the state in times of the year when they didn't normally have them. Uh, and in the Bay Area, it typically just doesn't rain for about eight months out of the year, which is one of the reasons that we have this very long smoke smoke event. And uh, one of the biggest drivers of the fires this year that have exploded is actually lightning. And hot and windy, humid lightning storms, I remember in New York, were not necessarily uncommon, but it's virtually unheard of in, in most parts of California. Um, so on top of the drought and the fire suppression, some of our biggest forests have lots of growth of underbrush, and that's competing for water with the trees. The trees get starved of water and nutrients. Those trees die off. So we have very poor forest health here. And all of that means there's an enormous amount of fuel that has to burn. Uh, you have weather conditions that are hot um, and lightning-y that are, are igniting our forests and those are tearing through areas that people live as we have continued to build in those parts of the state. Okay. And, and one uh, last thing I'll say is yeah. that uh, in recent years, our deadliest and biggest fires have come in October. We're not even there yet. So this is early in the year to be experiencing all this. Wow. 
Okay. And speaking of these fires, I mean, it's a tremendous task to try to fight them and rein them in. And I understand the state of California is now turning to formerly incarcerated people who served involuntarily as firefighters when they were in prison and have since been released and returned to civilian life and were previously denied the chance to pursue careers as firefighters, but now they're being welcomed into the force. Can you break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, so the end of the California legislative session came about in the end of August, and there's a bill called AB 2147 that uh, Gavin Newsom signed in the middle of a, a burned area um, in, a, in a bit of a, a photo op. And what that does is it gives people who were firefighters when they were behind bars the ability to apply to the state to get their records expunged. Um, and it already does not include people who potentially were convicted for violent felonies um, such as uh, murder, kidnapping, sex offenses, things like that, because those fire, uh, those people who were previously incarcerated already were not permitted to, to be firefighters, but some people with some felony convictions, once they got out, after they had done firefighting behind bars, they were barred from, uh, from getting jobs with uh, municipal firefighting crews because they couldn't get an EMT certification. And so this should help alleviate that. But it's very recent, and I haven't yet heard of anybody who's successfully gotten their um, their record expunged through this program. So it seems very aspirational at this point. CAL FIRE still says it is very understaffed um, in its project of fighting fires, which, again, is about suppressing fires and not necessarily um, um, managing them or, or doing prescribed burns. So that's where we're at with that. And I'll, I'll also say I've spent a lot of time on the phone with CAL FIRE and their, um, their media contacts in the last few weeks. And while I've, when I've spoken with them about um, so-called inmate firefighters, they insist that uh, people should not be called incarcerated firefighters or formerly incarcerated firefighters, but rather inmate hand crews. And so I think this choice of language just really stuck out to me that even while putting their lives on the line, still incarcerated firefighters are not treated as equals. Um, you know, it's yet to be seen whether they will be once they are um, acknowledged by the state. Right. And, and neither are they paid as equal. I understand they make about a, a dollar or a dollar sixty five an hour when they're uh, out on the out on the front lines doing this work. Um, also, yeah. I'm cu- just curious uh, out in the Bay Area. Uh, you all have one of the most uh, powerful politicians in the country, in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And a couple of years ago, in uh, early 2018, shortly after uh, AOC showed up on the scene in, in Congress uh, promoting a Green New Deal to uh, really try to address uh, what's happening with climate change in a very uh, thorough way, uh, she dismissed it, at, uh, calling it the, the Green New Dream or whatever. And now her hometown is, uh, you know, inundated in smoke for weeks. You have these fires raging up and down California. Do you you sense any blowback against Pelosi from from her constituents? And, I mean, whether that will manifest itself at the polls this year or maybe in the future? You know, during this crisis, air quality has been worse in San Francisco than it has been in Oakland, which is a weird reversal because Oakland is the site of, of a lot of 
environmental racism that makes the air quality here very bad and asthma very bad, especially for kids. But no, um, Nancy Pelosi still does not support the Green New Deal. And I have seen most of the blowback in the state um, targeting actually Governor Gavin Newsom because he has been escalating uh, the rate at which he's been signing oil and gas drilling permits even while uh, giving lip service to climate change and theoretically going to war with Trump and the media over, you know, both believing in climate change as a Democrat. So I haven't seen a lot of direct pushback against Nancy Pelosi right now. I do know that the Sunrise Movement is planning um, an action to respond to Trump when he comes to town soon. But I know Sunrise Movement activists online are definitely speaking out against Pelosi. Uh, one of them, Erin Bridges, was there two years ago when activists held a sit-in at her office, and she said she would never forget watching CNN in Pelosi's office as the images of the fires from 2018 flashed on the, the screen. And, you know, it's two years later, and she's still the only member of the Bay Area congressional delegation who has not co-sponsored the Green New Deal. Right. And, and one last question here, uh, which is, uh, I mean, uh, up the, up the way in Oregon, I mean, there's been tremendous fires and there, and there's been a, a lot of fear mongering that, uh, that, uh, Antifa is, is somehow involved with that. And, uh, it just strikes me that I mean, we ha- we're facing so many crises right now, climate change, uh, you know, racial injustice, the economy, the pandemic, but we're going to have a very hard time, uh, Resolving this, if, if people's ability to obtain information is so, is so polluted uh, and and people are so lost in this uh, you know maze of conspiracy theories, uh, any any thought on uh, how you know disinformation is affecting uh, people's ability to respond to the wildfires out there? Yeah, I agree. Some people have remained at their homes, which makes it harder for firefighters to do their jobs. And people were remaining at their homes because they're frightened that um, so-called, you know, left-wing extremists are going to come and light fires in their neighborhoods. This makes it harder because it takes longer to evacuate an area. It puts people's lives in danger, not just those who stay behind, but also the firefighters who have to come knock on your door. Um, And so there were numerous incorrect rumors spread in Facebook groups, including one that's false, uh, saying that seven members of the Antifa had been arrested for arson for starting the Oregon fires. This was debunked. It was debunked by local law enforcement. I really encourage listeners to check out the reporting of Jason Wilson in The Guardian. Um, He's a journalist who's been reporting on white nationalist movements and reporting on the Portland protests. And from his reporting, it really seems this disinformation has been spread in some of the same right-wing groups that... um, Uh, that have been planning the militia response to Portland protests, as well as some neighborhood groups uh, and and kind of regional groups in Southern Oregon, which uh, uh, just for your listeners, if you're not aware, the state of Jefferson is the name of a secessionist movement to take Southern Oregon and far Northern California and, and break them away from the United States uh, in order to have, you know, more liquor, more guns, um, more white people owning land. So uh, that, right. those are kind of the regions where that's spreading. Uh, okay. A lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of different uh, toxic uh, uh, things happening right, right now. Uh, well, we wish you all the best out, uh, out there uh, uh, dealing with all this. Um, we'll have to leave it, uh, leave it here for now. But Ariel Boone, a Bay Area journalist uh, who works with our fellow 
uh, Pacifica Station, KPFA. Thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight on the WBAI Evening News. Thanks, John. Keep up the great work. Okay, you too, Ariel. So before we move on to our second segment, we have a breaking news update to share from the Julian Assange extradition trial in London. Assange is the WikiLeaks publisher who faces 175 years in a U.S. prison for his role in releasing classified reports about the U.S. war effort in Iraq and Afghanistan, which revealed serious war crimes. He also released State Department cables showing U.S. meddling in the affairs of other governments around the world. His trial represents one of the gravest threats to a free press in the history of this country, as it would criminalize all different forms of investigative journalism that offend powerful people. And he's not being tried for his role in aiding Donald Trump in the 2016 election, but for this earlier work, which deeply embarrassed the U.S. government. Uh, in this uh, report, Rebecca Miles had, um, we have a two and a half minute report from Rebecca Miles. And so please listen in. And when, we're done with this uh, report. We'll be back with our final segment of the night about the situation with homeless people on the Upper West Side and whether they'll be welcomed there by their neighbors. Monday marked the fifth day of testimony in Julian Assange's extradition hearing and the beginning of the second week. The previous week was marred by an abrupt adjournment over a COVID-19 scare. Most of the court were in masks today except Judge Vanessa Baritzer and most of the prosecuting attorneys. Julian Assange was seen in the dock wearing a medical mask in a grey suit, white shirt and maroon tie. Kristen Hafnerson, WikiLeaks editor-in-chief, sat with defence attorneys. Defence witness Eric Lewis, a US attorney, gave testimony. He has represented veteran investigative journalist Cy Hirsch, is US chairman of Reprieve and represents Guantanamo and Afghan detainees in litigation. Lewis told the court it was significant Assange was indicted in 2018 for actions alleged in 2010 and not during the Obama administration and told the court no publisher had been prosecuted for just publishing. He argued that Attorney General Jeff Sessions and the current AG, Bill Barr, are demonstrating their willingness to prosecute journalists and whistleblowers as directed by President Trump, despite his initial comments in support of Assange and WikiLeaks. Prosecutor Lewis argued throughout how the U.S. justice system was fair and Assange would receive a fair jury trial. The witness, Eric Lewis, argued effectively back that with Sam's special administrative measures in place, Assange would not likely not have sufficient time with his lawyers, be held in isolation, the meeting would be attended by FBI personnel and audio collected by a third party. He corrected Lewis over facts and where a fair trial outcome had occurred for Zacharias Muzawi in the 9-11 case, not in the Eastern District of Virginia, but in the D.C. District Court, and quoted U.S. Bureau of Prisons' own reports about the state of mental health care in prisons, one mental health practitioner for every 500 inmates. Court was adjourned until Tuesday after it was interrupted by the sound of a U.S. TV report on Assange, and in the afternoon session, the court was able to bring back Eric Luce on the feed, but not so that he could be heard by the court. Reporters were bumped off the website three times. 
A court official explained the technical issues would be sorted out by 10 a.m. tomorrow. The court is investigating whether its feed was hacked or if it came from Eric Lewis's computer. There are 39 witnesses scheduled to give testimony. On our fifth day, we've heard from complete testimony from just three. Rebecca Miles, WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. All right, that was an update from the Julian... Assange extradition hearing in London by WBAI's Rebecca Miles. You're listening to the WBAI Evening News presented by The Independent. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. In our final segment, we turn to a controversy that has roiled the Upper West Side in recent weeks. The city has placed 300 homeless men at the Hotel Lucerne at 76 and Broadway so they don't have to stay in the shelter system and be at risk of getting COVID. Their presence has faced fierce opposition from some in the neighborhood with an assist from the New York Post who has made this controversy a front page topic several times. And and so we have people there who have insist uh, who've been very vocal about not wanting the homeless in the neighborhood, while others insist that the men should be welcomed and receive assistance. The Indies Rosie Rudowski has been following this story. Rosie, welcome to the show. We have about three minutes to talk about this and thank you for joining us. We're waiting for Rosie Try to again. come on the thanks air. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, sure, Rosie. Thanks for joining us. We have about uh, three minutes left here in the show to uh, briefly talk about this. Uh, for starters, there there was a, a, a rally outside of Gracie Mansion, uh, the residence of Mayor de Blasio yesterday, and you were there. Uh, can you give us a sense of the, of the sentiment of the advocates that, who were there uh, insisting that the mayor uh, not force uh, these uh, homeless people to move to different shelters and and, and disrupt the lives of uh, of people in other parts of the uh, of the of the shelter system. Yeah, so there were a bunch of people there uh, from the Upper West Side as well as neighbors on the East Side, in addition to homeless advocates and city officials, um, and they were all there urging uh, De Blasio to change his tune and specifically giving voice to uh, Harmonia residents and residents of other uh, homeless shelters who have been moved around uh, at will and and especially giving voice to disabled homeless residents who, um, you know, who have a very hard time getting the services that they need within the shelter system. Um, and Helen Rosenthal sort of led a call to get de Blasio to meet face-to-face with residents of the Lucerne and of the Harmonia um, before making a decision that would, you know, really shuffle them. Right. Now, Helen Rosenthal, uh, for folks, is the city council member from the Upper West Side who's been very supportive of the men who are staying at the uh, Hotel Lucerne. Right. Right. And and, and when we talk about the Harmonia, this is this uh, other uh, – residents on East 31st Street where uh, women and children are staying and, and some of them have uh, health care needs and are near the hospital district. And if I understand this correctly, if the men are moved out of the Hotel Lucerne on the Upper West Side, uh, they could be sent to the Harmonia, which would then uh, displace the people who are currently using that facility. Yeah, and um you know, many of the Harmonia residents have been living there more long term, too, um, and have gotten the services that they need specifically 
at the Harmonia. Um, and wherever they're sent, it's unclear that they would have those services there. Right. And and you had a chance uh, this weekend to, to spend some time talking to men uh, staying at the Hotel Lucerne. I mean, the, the New York Post in particular has painted a very lurid picture of of, of these men. And there, there have been some problems in the neighborhood. But we're talking about 300 people. And, and can you tell us what you found uh, with the people you spoke with and where they're at in their lives? Yeah, um, I spoke with a handful of men staying at the Lucerne. Um, you know, of the people that I spoke to, they they did acknowledge that there had been some incidents uh, with some of the individuals staying there, um, but felt that a lot of people were being punished for uh, issues with just a few. Um, they were talking about, you know, how difficult this COVID moment has been, especially in finding employment and in finding a way to get back on their feet and get housing. Um but All right, we have about 20 seconds left before we'll have to cut out. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they're they're working hard at making progress and saving money, looking for jobs, uh, and, you know, being as respectful as they can uh, in the community. They understand that they are joining this community um, and hope to be welcomed. Okay, Rosie Radowski, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us this, this evening on the WBAI Evening News. Thanks so much. You bet. Alrighty, uh, we'll, we'll have to leave here in a sec. A, a special thank you to Amba Gagarin, Renee Feltz, Leah Duran for their help with this evening's show. You can follow the latest news from the Independent at independent.org, including Rosie's reporting from the Upper West Side. And please, if you can, make a donation in the name of this show to help WBI. The number is 516-620-3602. Again, 516-620-3602, or go to give to WBAI.org and become a WBAI buddy. That's the best way you can help the station sign up to give $10 or more per month.